Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. Today we're talking with Jay Bear. He teaches entrepreneurs and executives how to create customers and keep the ones they already have. But what's interesting about this episode, we're talking about hugging your haters. In other words, replying to every complaint, no matter how painful, no matter what channel, every time, how that can make your business and your personal life better which haters to ignore, which ways to respond, something called the hatrix, which filters all the haters down into different categories. And as much as the word haters is overused, I think everyone here is gonna find something super useful for either their business or if you don't have one, for your personal life, or if you do, for both. So enjoy this one with Jay Bear, and welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all the questions. Make sure to stay up to date with The Art of Charm and get some great stuff that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up at theartofcharm.com. That's where we'll email you our fundamentals toolbox that covers topics like body language, nonverbal communication, persuasion, business networking, public speaking, negotiation, and a whole lot more. I'm also doing regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward every single week. We've got our live programs running here in California as well. Get in touch by phone or email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com, and we'll look forward to meeting you here at AOC. We've also got the social capital challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed to 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. It will make you a better networker, it will make you a better connector, and if you want some accountability, invite your friends as well to theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or have them text CHARMED to 33444, and they can join the challenge too. Here's Jay Bear. So Jay, tell us what you do in one sentence. I am a public speaker, author, and consultant, helping companies get more customers and keep the ones they've already earned. That's interesting because I think a lot of people are focused on massive customer acquisition business-wise, of course. That's very often the name of the game. We just talked about that pre-show where certain sponsors of The Art of Charm are just dumping tons and tons of money to gain new customers, whereas their support, frankly, can be terrible. And uh, the way they interact with their customers, if they do that at all, is awful. 
Well, business rewards customer acquisition, right? Everything in business is set up to emphasize new customer and top line growth, but it's actually pretty short sighted when you think about it. I mean, look, Jordan, you learn in the first day in business. I mean, you learn by lunch in the first day in business that it actually makes more sense financially over time to hold on to customers to keep the customers you've already earned instead of sort of filling that metaphorical leaky bucket that people always talk about. In fact, there's some research that shows that just a 5% increase in customer retention can increase profits by 25 to 85% because of the geometric effect of holding onto those customers and being able to reduce marketing spend accordingly. Everybody knows that. Like, there's nobody who's going to say, that's not true. Customer retention is overrated. Like, everybody knows there's no, there's no other side of the argument but we don't actually run businesses that way. Each year, globally, globally, we spend about $500 billion on marketing and about $9 billion a year on customer service. That doesn't actually make a lot of sense when you think about it. Yeah, it doesn't. Well, of course, it doesn't make a lot of sense unless your goals are not in line with economics, which is kind of, by definition, crappy business practice. I don't know that it's crappy, but I would say it's short-sighted. And, and think about this. The average tenure of a CMO, I haven't seen the number recently. The last time I checked, the average tenure of a chief marketing officer was like 15 months. So they're not playing the long game. They could care less, right? They want to pump and dump, right? Because they're either going to move on to a better job or get knocked down to a worse job, but that's all going to play out in four or five quarters. So they're not going to think about, hey, how can we build a customer experience to last over 10 years and outflank our competitors you know, two months at a time by getting more loyal customers to advocate on our behalf? half, very few people have that patience, especially in large companies. So if this isn't necessarily, quote unquote, crappy business practice, and it's not really in the interest of the CMO, how do you have a job? <laughs> right, that's a good point. It's exactly right. Well, the nice thing is that people are understanding now uh, that customer service is being disrupted the same way that marketing has been disrupted, and that in many ways, customer service is the new marketing. And that's because more and more and more of customer service interactions are playing out in public. Customer service is a spectator sport now. An increasing share of all the interactions between customers and companies are in social media, discussion boards, review sites like Yelp, TripAdvisor, or whatever is the important review site in your industry. And in a circumstance like that, where how you handle customers is, is out there for everybody to see, you can use that as a real competitive differentiator and actually make that difference between you and your competitors more acute and reap the benefits of that more quickly. I noticed you've worked with Nike, Allstate, a bunch of Fortune 500 companies, but one thing really stood out, which is the United Nations. Who's competing with the UN and what customer do they have that they're servicing? So the part of the UN that we work with, and I got to tell you how fortunate uh, we are at Convince to Convert to, to be able to have a client like that. The part of the UN that, that we work with primarily in social media strategy is what's called FAO. And FAO is responsible, their mission statement is to eradicate global hunger. Okay, that's legit. So there's that. Right, there's that whole save the world thing. Right, and so FAO stands for the Food and Agriculture Organization. So they're responsible for figuring out how to essentially, I'm summarizing this, but how to essentially make farming more effective everywhere in the world. How can people grow more crops, more sustainable crops, and feed humanity? And so their competitors, if you will, quote unquote, are other nonprofits who also work on hunger relief efforts. And so they're also, in many cases, collaborators as well as competitors. Nice. I'm glad to see that NGOs are actually taking some private sector cues because we talked with Scott Harrison of Charity Water and I've talked with Adam Brown of Pencils of Promise 
running those things super differently to a business because there's almost like a stigma attached to it is disastrous. It absolutely is. And I got to tell you, uh, I don't want to tell tales out of school here, but but as you said, we've worked with a lot of really big companies and been really fortunate to do so. And of all the clients that, that I have come into contact with over the years, I got to tell you, the United Nations team and their social media savvy is in the very, 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 very top. It is spectacular how good they are, how smart they are, and how committed and dedicated their team is everywhere in the world. It is, it is an absolute joy to watch them work. That's surprising, actually. Yeah, it, you know, and I got to tell you, it surprised me too. When we got that account, I was like, man, this is going to be like a quasi-governmental nightmare, nightmare right? Yeah, sort of all the, you know, everybody's worked in that industry or has stories. And I thought, man, this is going to be a hard slog. And it was the exact opposite. I was like, man, we got to bring our A game every day in terms of recommendations for these guys because they are super on it. You've written a bunch of books as well. The next one, Hug Your Haters, comes out tomorrow. Woo! Yes, Woo is right. First of all, why do you keep writing books? That might be a dumb question, but isn't there a diminishing return at a certain point of like, okay, I've hit the bestseller list a bunch of times, why bother? My family is in the education business. My mom was a high school teacher for 30 years. My stepdad was a high school teacher for 30 years. My aunt was a very successful corporate trainer for a long time. I feel the need to educate, and it is what I do best and is actually what I enjoy the most. And so when I see things, I see patterns, I see disruption, I see consumer behavior shifts, I see the collision between marketing and customer service, I feel like I need to translate those shifts for a larger audience. And so when I see something that I think is happening that people don't fully understand, I feel like I've got to write it down. That's why I do it emotionally. Why I do it practically is that I give a lot of speeches all over the world. And and as a professional speaker, and I spend probably half of my time now actually doing speeches and traveling and doing that whole part of the game, um, you know, I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm not an inspirational speaker. I'm a, what we call in the business, a content speaker. When you're a content speaker, you, you got to have another story to tell, right? You can't tell the same advice, the same, hey, you should do this forever, right? You've got like a three-year shelf life. It's very similar, Jordan, to the music business. So if you have an album and that's great, you tour behind that album and you reap the rewards of that album, but then you've got to cut another album. And, and so for me, books are my album. Ah, gotcha. So this stuff's all stuck in your brain, and you're like, I gotta get it out in some sort of permanent fashion. Absolutely, yeah. And then, and then once you get it out, then you can atomize it, which is one of the things that I think that my team and I are pretty good at. We we take an idea, we take a book out of it, but then we deconstruct that book into a bunch of other content modalities. Uh, I also write books a little differently than most people. Most people write a book and then and then write a speech. I write a speech and then turn the speech into a book, which is why most of my books have a more of a kind of a narrative arc to them than, than most other business books. Ah, interesting. Why do you do it that way? Uh, I just feel like it makes for a better book, right? It has a beginning and a middle and an end, whereas most business books really don't. It's like, here's a collection of things that I'm going to tell you in somewhat random order, uh, and I want to make sure that, that the stories and the sequencing of the read uh, actually feels more like a story that you would hear uh, over dinner and in, in a conversation or at a conference. And so I just think it makes for a better book. And, and if you look at sort of how people read through my work uh, on Amazon, you know, Kindle will show you, Amazon Kindle will show you how far people read through the book and things like that. Uh, I've always been really successful with that. People tend to finish my books, not just start them. And that's gratifying. In the beginning, and forgive me for saying so, it ran in my own mind only, the danger of being like, oh, this is one of those, let's be counterintuitive because it's catchy, right? And I'm sure you've heard that before, or at least that's crossed your mind. 
having written a bunch of other books. What's the principle behind Hug Your Haters? Because the a lot of the wisdom out there is screw the haters, they hate us because they ain't us is a famous uh, little yeah. thing that came out of the interview, right? Not necessarily a place where you should get wisdom for life, however. <laughs> right. um, but there's there's tons of that. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to write a customer service book, Jordan, because everybody thinks they don't need it. Right. But the, the data shows something very different. Research from Forrester says that 80%, 80% of businesses say that they deliver superior customer service. 8% of their customers agree. <laughs> so you're not as good at customer service as you think you are. And customer service has changed so much in the last two years as more and more customers now want to interact with companies online and in public. And most organizations simply are not prepared for that. In fact, today, one third of all customer complaints are ignored, are never answered. One third. And almost oh all gosh. of those customer complaints that are ignored are in public venues like social media, Yelp, etc. And that doesn't make any sense at all, because a lack of reply is a reply. It's a reply that says, we don't care enough about you to even respond. And so really, businesses would be better off not answering all the phone calls, but answering all the questions in public. But we don't do it that way. And this isn't accidental. Like, you know, you say people ignore the haters. This isn't an accident why companies don't respond to angry customers. It's a strategy. It's purposeful. It's like we, our policy is that we don't respond to negativity in places uh, that are out in public, which is absolutely short-sighted. That's the place that you should be responding. Not only is it the right thing to do, but I commissioned a tremendously comprehensive research project for this book that proves mathematically that it's the right thing to do. I won't get into the details of that. One, it's your trade secret, and two, it's probably not as necessary as the conclusions. Am I right? Absolutely, but I think it's safe to say that unlike most business books, which are, I have an idea, you should do this, trust me, this is a book that is based entirely on real research. Oh, that's probably wise. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of stuff out there that's like, I armchair quarterback all this because I've been in business and I have this unique path that can't be replicated easily, but here's what you should do in your situation. No, right? That's not necessarily accurate where you actually brought data and proof, which is helpful much of the time. Everybody has haters, businesses, even just regular folks, and my natural reaction, well, maybe not mine, many people's natural reaction is to dismiss them. Some people confront them emotionally, they're crazy or it's painful if you want to ignore it, whatever. A lot of people say that haters shouldn't be a problem, and you say haters aren't your problem, but ignoring them is your problem. Absolutely. Look, haters are actually your most important customers. They're your most important fans, the most important listeners. Why? But we treat them like they're the least important. Here's the thing. Haters are actually really, really rare. People who complain is actually really rare. Only 5%, only 5% of unhappy, dissatisfied customers will ever complain in a form or fashion that the business can find it. And the same is true for everything. The same is true for podcast listeners or anything else. There may be, there is more dissatisfaction out there than you see. Only 5% will actually use their time, go out of their way to tell you about it. And so those people are actually sort of the canary in the coal mine, right? right. They are the unelected representatives of a much larger group. So you should not ignore them. You should actually embrace them because it's free market research, right? They're telling you what you need to know. Because look, Jordan, here's the thing. The most overrated thing in business, the most overrated thing in life is praise. Every time somebody says, Jordan, you're so great. Love the show. Art of Charm is the best podcast in the world. It makes you feel awesome. Yep but it teaches you nothing. Right. You already know what you're good at. You already know. 
what teaches us important life lessons, important business lessons is negative feedback and criticism. Criticism is the Petri dish for improvement. Without it, you never get any better. So this is kind of in line with the whole, if one person sends you an email, 100 people are thinking the same thing, or is that what? Well, I would say, uh, based on the research, 19 people are thinking the same thing. 19, that's still a lot more than just the one who said something. A lot more than one. So if you get more than one email about something, it's like, hey, look, if you got five emails about this, 100 people. Probably where there's smoke, there's fire. Right, that, that makes sense. But there have to be different types of haters because I get a lot of email and a lot of it is, hey, love your show, no, no feedback other than that. Hey, love your show, but sometimes you do this thing and I take it with a grain of salt, but when I see three of them, I'm like, oh yeah, that happens a lot. And then I bring it to Jason's attention and he cracks the whip when it happens next because he's kind of like my coach for this stuff, right? And he's paying attention on the, not so much the sideline, but in the game as well. And But I also get email like, you know what, you're a jerk because your country started the Arab-Israeli conflict. And I'm like, okay, this isn't really relevant to what I do. That was a real bit of email that I got this week, by the way. I love it. Well, what I would do is is I would answer that back with a rational reply and say, well, that's neither here nor there because that's not the business that I'm in. And I appreciate that you've got a strong opinion about this. But um, if you'd like to ask me any questions about the show, happy to answer. Customers are not always right. Far from it. Listeners are not always right. Far from it. But they deserve to be heard, especially when they're reaching out in public because in those public venues, not so much in email, but in the public venues, it's not so much about making that person happy, although that's what you should do, but it's about all the people who are looking on, all the spectators, which could be tens or hundreds or thousands or ten thousands of people who are going to see how you answer that or choose not to answer it. Right. So this isn't just the email that you're getting privately. This is the Facebook post. This is the tweets. Well, you certainly get the multiplier effect there, right? Because there's so many other people who are going to see it potentially. I think the, the area that I talked about in the book that, that actually has the biggest impact for businesses and is very rarely actually executed on is, is review sites. So whether it's Yelp or TripAdvisor or G2 Crowd or TrustRadius or Spiceworks or ApartmentRatings.com or whatever ratings and review sites are important in your industry, iTunes for that matter, although you can't answer back there. Amazon, you can though. I mean, authors can answer back on, on Amazon. They almost never do. and so. In most cases, if somebody leaves a negative review, the business ignores it and says, we don't even get involved in that kind of stuff. Well, then that negativity partially becomes true because you're not saying it's not true. So it's there. And then it just leeches brand reputation forever, right? It's just sitting there like hemorrhaging over time and over time. It could be years. And how many people have seen that over the years? And you never took the time not to not to fight about it, but to just say, hey, we apologize that we were less than perfect. We'll do better next time. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? 
interviewing endless people because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. If I see negative reviews for a product or something on Amazon, and there's a lot, I'm like, oh, I shouldn't get this one, I should get the other one. But if there's negative reviews and the company says, oh, we're really sorry you had that, please mail it back to us. I don't know why you're just, you didn't do that. And I'm like, oh, this guy's just a knucklehead. He didn't even try to return it, and they're sitting here wondering why. It's his problem. This is a customer issue. Companies here serving the customers can't get it right every time, but if they're trying, that's major bonus points. That's better than another five-star review in the same place. Exactly. There's some amazing research. This isn't from my uh, research project, but I do cite it in the book, that if a customer has a problem and the business successfully solves that problem, the customer becomes more loyal than if they never had a problem at all, which makes me think, how can we create some sort of artificial problem that we know we can solve exactly. and, and extend it to all customers to trigger that loyalty effect? But it's really amazing. It's like, we're like, well, we're in this together now. Thanks for helping me. And it creates this real loyalty effect. But but it doesn't even have to be anything that major. In the, in the research that I did for the book, we found that just answering one complaint, just one customer complaint, just answering, not even solving it, just answering, just like you talked about in Amazon, can increase customer loyalty by 25%. That's huge. That has massive bottom line implications. I'm interested in that, of course, but also the personal life implications. Like, hey, somebody tells you something, somebody gives you a bit of feedback. My girlfriend, Jen, she's very fond of saying, look, Jordan, no one else is gonna tell you this, but, and then I know it's just gonna hurt. Like, it's gonna burn, because it's gonna be very, very true. 
she never uses this for her own agenda. So her credibility is pretty high on this. But it's always like, look, man, you know, you do this a lot. And the thing is, the reason you never heard it before, no one else is going to tell you this. Absolutely. And she's exactly right. And we all need that in our lives. We all need those truth tellers. And I, and I think one of the scary things about life is that as you become more successful and you've got, you know, thousands of successful people on the show, as you become more successful, paradoxically, people become less likely to call you out, not more in a way that you actually believe is credible in the way that uh, your girlfriend does, right? I mean, you'll, you'll get people taking pot shots at you from the sidelines, but that's you're not going to treat that as the same kind of credibility. And I'll tell you what, Jordan, I think that's why we've seen such a, a big explosion in mastermind groups and those kind of things where it's like, look, I got five guys that will tell me the truth regardless. And those five guys are the most important five guys in my life because I can't BS them and they can't BS me. I think especially among men, particularly, it's something that we've been lacking for a while. And I won't go down that whole like, everybody gets a blue ribbon for participation, it's bad for society type of throttle right now. But I think it's very true and I, people are willing to pay for that. And the problem is you have the credibility issue where you don't know who to believe if you're just checking your inbox because you, you'll get the, like you said, the pot shot takers. But how do we separate the two types of haters? You've got the hatrix. Can we hear about that a little bit? The hatrix, uh, I love this actually. Every copy of Hug Your Haters, the book, uh, has a poster in it, and it, the poster is called The Hatrix, and it has this whole graphical layout of all the different pieces of data from the book and what you should do in each scenario. So you can pull it out of the book, put it on your wall, put it on your desk, keep it around, refer back to it. I'm really psyched that they allowed me, the publishers allowed me to put a poster in every book. You don't see that very often, so that's kind of cool. The Hatrix describes the differences in how people complain. And so it turns out that in the research, I discover that there's two main types of haters. So the first type are called off-stage haters. And I call them that because they complain in private. So email, like the email you got recently, or phone. And those people are, generally speaking, a little older and a little less tech savvy. They complain in private. Now, when they complain in private, what they want is an answer. 90% of people who complain in private want and expect an answer. If you email somebody, you expect them to email you back. If you call a company, you expect them to call you back. And it's like, that's just the social contract, right? Yeah. So when you do answer that email or you do answer that call, you get a little credit for doing that, but not very much because they expected you to do so. You're like, oh, you emailed me back? Well, okay, well, you're supposed to. The other group of haters that was really different, they're called on-stage haters. And I call them that because they complain on stage, in public, social media, forums, review sites. They're a little younger, a little more tech savvy, but those demographic differences aren't, aren't significant. What is significant, though, is the expectation differences. So the people who complain in public don't necessarily want an answer. In many cases, what they want is an audience. What they want is all their friends on Facebook to be like, oh, that totally sucks. I'm so sorry that happened to you, right? Mm. They want this like group empathy tsunami, and they don't even necessarily expect to hear back from a business. In fact, only 47% of the time do people who complain in social media expect a business to get back to them, partially because most businesses don't. So this is a huge opportunity for everybody. Business, personal, doesn't matter. When you answer your critics in public, they'd never see it coming. And you can blow their minds and steal their hearts when you do that. It's a big, big opportunity. I've been trying to make a point of answering like every negative tweet, every negative, even YouTube comments, which is the craziest place in the world, 
you're like, I usually wouldn't even go in there. I'm like, and you just go in there and answer people who are like, I don't like that show at all. I didn't like that episode. It has an amazing impact on people because they can't believe you actually took the time. YouTube comments are scary because one, they're about probably what you look and sound like, but also it's like ISIS is on there. It's just like. <laughs> it is, it is a crazy, crazy neighborhood for sure. People are like, oh, this one was cool. And the next person's like, it's not cool. You're insert like disgusting, really graphic expletive here. And then the third one is like, Obama's a Muslim. And you're like, what happened on this, this wall in the last 15 minutes? This is not relevant. Yeah, what happened here? Replying to those, I assume you only, well, speaking of that example, which ones do you reply to? I mean, you don't reply to the irrational ones or do you? Uh, if it was completely off topic, right, or, or what you always see in Facebook comments is, I make $4,000 from home, you know, whatever, you get that whole thing. If it's totally off topic, right, and somebody's just like link dropping or, or it's just completely random, then I wouldn't address those. But anything that is about you or about the show or about your thing, then I would address them, yeah. Interesting. Just to make people, even no matter how much unreasonable they might be, feel heard, right? Because you can ostensibly win them as a fan, even if they're being completely ridiculous. Not only can you possibly win them as a fan, but it shows all these other people who are on the fence like, wow, this guy is going above and beyond. Nobody else is willing to do that. Yeah, I, I suppose that makes a lot of sense because they're looking for, even if they're just looking for attention, you're giving it to them. At what point, though, do you stop? Because I can see this getting out of hand where, oh, well, if Jay's going to write back to everything I say, I'm just going to have a conversation with Jay. Exactly. Exactly. So that's why one of my favorite parts in the whole book is Jay Bear's rule of reply only twice. And my rule of reply only twice says, Jordan, that you never, ever, 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 ever reply to somebody in public more than twice. If it's positive, like Jordan, I love you. You answer back. I love you too. Said, no, I really love your show, The Art of Charm. You answer back. I love you too. Thanks. If they're super duper fan, they come back a third time just walk away. Like you've already high-fived it twice. You don't need, you're just wasting time after that, right? The more likely scenario, of course, is that it's negative. Somebody leaves you a message in public Facebook or, you know, blog comment or whatever. Jordan, I hate you. You answer back, hey, I'm really sorry. Uh, how can I help? They answer back, and you probably can't help me because I just hate you. And you answer a second time, you know, this might require some additional uh, discussion. I'm not really sure what your problem is. I would love for you to email me or call me and we can just, you know, talk it out. They answer a third time. I don't need to email you or call you. I just hate you. At that point, you should always just walk away because you've given that person not just one, but two chances. You've given them alternate contact mechanisms and you've demonstrated to all the people watching what your values are and that you do care. After that, walk away. You don't need to wrestle everybody to the ground. You just need to be on record. If you're giving people a chance to do this in a public forum, does this same rule apply to email communication that I guess, quote unquote, private? You should use the same rule, yes, but the reasons that you use it are more for time efficiency and less for the multiplier effect of the audience that's looking on. Right, okay, that makes sense. And I suppose there's always a chance that someone goes, look at this email exchange I just had with Jay. He is such an a-hole, because that day you were like, no one's gonna see this. You know what, I don't care if you don't like me. I looked at your Facebook profile, and you have a dog face. That can bite you in the butt, right? Absolutely, you know, private is only temporary in this age. And then you're going, oh, I wish I hadn't wrote that, and I was reasonable. Yeah, back when I worked in the law firm, the rule was, expect everybody to see every email that you write, and then click send. Of course. And uh, I've broken that rule a lot, and I've definitely had some consequences as a result as well. Well, an email in particular, the, the problem there isn't so much 
customers being ignored. It's that we just don't do it fast enough, which seems weird, right? Because email has been around a long time. We're just not fast enough at email, at least in business. This is going to blow you away, Jordan. You're, you will not believe this. The average amount of time it takes businesses to reply to customer emails right now is 44 hours. That's a long time. It's almost two days. So what happens all the time, and maybe this has happened to you, I guarantee you it's happened to a lot of listeners, is you email a company and you have some sort of issue. And you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and a day, a day and a half goes by and you're like, these guys are blowing me off. So now you're double pissed, right? You're mad from whatever they did to begin with. And now you're mad because you didn't get an email back. So now you're like, you know what? I'm taking this public. I'm raising the stakes, man. So now you go to Facebook or Yelp or Amazon or whatever, and you light them up. And then a couple hours later, you get the email, right? And so they actually made their own problem bigger because they were too slow to get back to you. It happens constantly. Wow, so you can completely shoot yourself in the foot by ignoring it, you can shoot yourself in the foot by taking too long to address it, because again, it sounds like what you're coming down to is this is an emotional need that needs to be met. 100%, it absolutely is. One of the most acute challenges is that it's an emotional need that you need to, to take care of on the part of your customers, but you also, paradoxically, have to try to do it without emotion, and it's incredibly difficult. I know you know what I'm talking about. When somebody tells you something that is negative, it makes you feel like somebody's saying your baby's ugly, right? Yeah. Especially if you're a small business owner or an entrepreneur, you're like, wait a second, man, this feels pretty personal. It's usually not personal, but it feels personal. We interviewed for the book some psychiatrists, and I said, hey, so what happens to your brain when you confront negative criticism? And it turns out that your whole brain chemistry changes. It's very similar to the fight or flight response. It's like, you know, it's like having a gun held on you or there's a cop behind you or whatever. You completely go bananas in the head. And so now what I'm telling you to do is answer everybody back quickly and you should, but it's really hard to do that when you're like in the head. And so right. that's why a lot of times people will respond and they respond in a way that's so disproportionate that it takes a bad situation and makes it really, really worse. But it is really hard to keep your cool. I had somebody send me a negative email today, like a few hours ago, that really bothered me. And as I was typing back the response, right, my heart rate went up and I was breathing heavier and I started to sweat a little bit like I was pissed. And then I said, hey, I just wrote a book about this idiot. And I deleted that email, closed the laptop, went to a meeting, came back, rewrote it, and it was much, much better. But I got to tell you, it took an, an enormous amount of restraint to not completely blast that back. And, and it's just natural, right? It is, it is physiology. Yes, it is fight or flight response. What I use, You ever heard of Boomerang? It's a tool I talk about here and there on the show. So what I do is my policy, which I don't always follow, admittedly, is when I'm able to, you know, when I have the willpower to do so, and I try to train myself to be able to do this at the right times, and I'll give myself a little credit. I have been very successful with it. I will boomerang something. If I get an email and it, my, I feel my heart rate elevate, and I'm like, let me tell you about this, you son of a gun, I will boomerang it for two, four days. It makes you feel good because you think, ah, I'm gonna ignore you for now. And it's not necessarily exactly what needs to be done. I think I might lower that time period now that you mentioned, I might make it like four hours. Because then when I see it again, I go, oh yeah, this guy. Uh, anyway, response versus how dare you, explosion, and then, oh man, I wish I could unsend that half an hour later. Or too late. what's yep. worse, the guy replies sometimes and goes, hey, I, I only sent you that because I just, I love what you do and I just wanted to try to make it better. I'm really sorry. And then I'm like, nope. 
Yeah, then you feel terrible, right? You're like, oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I just can't control my emotions because I'm a child, right? That's the worst feeling. Yep, I've um, been there. Do you use this in your personal life? I mean, we're all creators now, right? But Totally. How do you see people using this in their personal lives, and how do you use it in your personal life? Because not everybody here is a small business owner, and I want to make sure that people don't go, I don't do customer support. Next track. Yeah, no doubt. No, I use it all the time. It's totally changed the way I handle Twitter and Facebook and Amazon reviews. A guy gave me a one-star review of my previous book, Utility. Uh, and he said, my 13-year-old son could write better than this bozo. And <laughs> so I answered him back and I said, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry that you didn't like the book. I would be happy to buy you any other book in Amazon. You just let me know what the book is that you want and I will send it to you free of charge. And by the way, if your 13-year-old has that kind of writing ability, I would love to see a resume because we're always looking for content contributors. Wow. And just left it right there. It has totally changed the way I interact with people. Every time I get negativity, I just, matter of fact, here's, you know, just answer everybody, matter of factly, try not to take it personally. Don't get into any sort of like negative vortex, flame war. And, and it has made my life way easier because now I have rules, right? I have a worksheet, do this, 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 and this. It's not random. I know exactly what to do. I have a process. And that makes it less emotional and way easier to take care of because I know what I'm going to do every time. So there's two types of haters. The types are, once again, if you can go over those. Off stage, so people who complain in private. Okay. And on stage, the people who complain in public. What do they want when they complain? So the offstage people who complain in private want an answer, and the onstage people who complain in public in most cases want an audience, right? They want everybody else to feel sorry for them. Thanks for humoring me on that. I wanna review stuff because I want people to see the hatred, at least in their mind when they're, when they're driving instead of paying attention to the road. <laughs> I want people to be able to see this in their head, actually, because I think that helps a lot. Until, of course, people are able to grab the book if it strikes their fancy. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm.
What about trolls, though? I mean, you kind of hinted at this, right? These are the people that complain in public, but it's totally unreasonable. I mean, the guy who sent you that nasty review, that's not quite troll level. I mean, maybe it was on topic, but... It was was on topic, at least, right? For example, this crazy person who's like, I listen to your show. By the way, your tax dollars go to killing babies in the Middle East. You're insert, like, massive amounts of expletives. And I just thought, this person is legitimately insane. There's something wrong with this person. Yeah, so my recommendation on that, I call them the crazies in the book, the third group, uh, the crazies. And so every organization, every individual has to figure out what their rules are. And you want to actually write your rule down and then adhere to it. Because the mistake we make is we treat everything like a, a fresh example. So should I answer this guy? And then you have to kind of think through this whole process and focus on it and make rules every time. So instead you say, look, here's my rule. My rule is I will answer everybody as long as it's not a personal threat or profane. Everybody else I will answer. Other people will say, I don't care if somebody's profane, I'll answer them, but I won't answer them if they talk about my mom or whatever, right? You just have to figure out exactly what your rules are, write them down so you don't forget them and stick to them. Because when you treat every circumstance like a new special case, it causes so much more mental anguish and so much more time and so much more messing around than you need to, than you need to worry about. Just say, these are my rules. If this, that. If this, I don't answer. And yeah. leave it at that. This makes sense. I, I, I think it seems like common sense at a certain level, but making the rule and sticking to it versus taking each one as a fresh case is a really good idea. Something I'm definitely going to do right after this. I take each crazy as an individual case, yeah. and, and that's dumb, because now I'm sitting here wasting brain cells and brain power and bandwidth. What it makes you focus on in a way that's really negative. Right, right, it's, it's completely ridiculous in light of that. So if you have a rule that says, look, anytime it's so far off topic and or a personal threat and or can't make the show better because it's, what I would have to do is change the entire policy of the Western world against you know the Middle East or something. <laughs> not beyond w- the scope of the show. Right, not in my wheelhouse, not something I can do. Even if I were the president of the United States, I probably wouldn't be able to change all of this policy, right? So completely ridiculous, delete. But one thing to think about is to not even delete them, actually save them. Because at some point you should do a show or a video, which is Jordan reads crazy reviews, Jordan reads mean tweets, like that kind of content that the late night hosts have have done is so terrific because it makes light of all of that. Uh, There's an amazing woman who's a senator in Australia, and she reads her mean tweets in YouTube videos, and it's unbelievable the stuff that people send her and she's a senator and but she gets it right she's like you know what i'm not going to let you tear me down i'm going to make light of it and so she goes on youtube every couple weeks and reads them and laughs about it and it's amazing does that not then encourage more ridiculousness in your inbox and thus a, a wasting of further bandwidth you know that's a good question i don't think so. I don't think so. Because typically the people who lash out like that are not necessarily looking for publicity. They're looking for a rise out of you, right? They're just trying to cause trouble. But it's a good question. I should ask her. I should uh, call her back and say, hey, since you started doing this, do you see a volume uh, change? That's a really good point. I don't know. Yeah, I guess it might not matter because you might end up with a bigger payoff in terms of, well, more material, but also a bigger credibility payoff in terms of your existing audience going, wow, cool. Well, and, and for legitimate complaints, right, for, for legitimate feedback, you actually want more, not less. So I, I want to tell you the story from the book, which I think is really illustrative. So there's a, a business called La Pan Quotidienne, and they're a chain of uh, bakery cafes. There's a bunch in like the Northeast and in SoCal, but they're based in Brussels. They've got a couple hundred locations around the world. And their head of customer experience is this woman, Erin Pepper. And when she started there like two years ago, she said, here's my goal for this brand. My goal 
is to triple the number of complaints. Yeah, that's weird. That's weird. Right, unusual. To triple the number of complaints. Because every complaint allows us to get better. And I tell you what, if you want to get fewer complaints, if you want less negative feedback, it's super easy to do that. Here's the secret. If you want less complaints, just stop listening for them as hard. Really? Piece of cake. So easy, right? Oh, I don't know what happened. I didn't, I didn't check that email box. I didn't look at Twitter. I didn't see the comments. You just kind of start to tune out and you're like, oh, I don't get as many complaints. Well, it's because you're not really looking as aggressively. And so she thinks about it the exact opposite, which I think is truly brilliant. It's like, look, I want as many complaints as possible. Every single customer that has an experience that's less than perfect, she wants to know about it. So in their stores... They've got all these different ways to nudge customers to provide feedback. There's table tents and signage and all the waiters and waitresses are trained to ask you, hey, Jordan, how was your experience? And please go here and tell us about it. I mean, they're like constantly pushing, 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 pushing to get feedback because they know that's how they get better. I, I definitely can appreciate that. It is an exercise in, it's like a meditation thing, right? Like we are going to put yourself through hell. It's like a hell week. I don't know. There's a yeah. training element of this that, that's scary, but, but beneficial coming out the other side. Well, but the thing is, you're not necessarily making their experience worse That's true. or encouraging bad experience. You're just trying to hear about it. Remember, only 5% of people are unhappy talk about it. If you can change that percentage from 5% to 10 or 15, I mean, think about what the impact of that could be on, on life. I mean, if everybody who had a problem with this show told you instead of just a few people, show could be a lot better. The show's already amazing, but you know what I'm saying? I mean, right. just the math of that has real, real positive implications. Is there a danger, though, of only listening to the squeaky wheels who maybe don't even, how do you decide kind of, okay, this is valid, this isn't, versus I just feel like it could get really easy for me to listen to the people who are like, hey, I only want to hear about meeting younger women. I mean, I get emails like that all the time, and I'm like, ugh, no thanks. I'm over it. There's 150 episodes on meeting women that I did eight years ago that I don't that aren't relevant to me anymore, go listen to that, or the people who are like, I only want to hear entrepreneur stuff. They don't even want what we're really selling. Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting, actually, when you get more feedback, it solves that problem. You're not necessarily treating every complaint as actionable. You want to address it, but it's not actionable. What you're looking for is patterns, right? So when you talked about earlier, if, if you get five emails about the same issue, like that's probably a thing. Well, if you get way more emails, you're going to see more of those patterns. They're going to emerge out of the data, if you will, which is why there's a, there's a big data implication for this, right? That the more feedback you get, the more you can kind of comb through that and say, oh, well, that's interesting. A bunch of people are saying this, therefore, maybe there's some truth to it. How do you discern them between feedback and complaints? Are they the same thing? A complaint and feedback is really in the eye of the recipient. What's interesting, if you look at review sites, Yelp, TripAdvisor, things like that, I'm sure this is true. You've had this experience, Jordan. So you'll see somebody's review and it's like pretty positive. You're like, that's a pretty good review. And then you look, it's two stars. You're like, how did that, how is that two stars if it was that positive of an experience? And then conversely, you'll see people who like rip a business in a review and it's four stars. So I'm like, wait, your numbers are all off sync with your actual, you know, experience here. And so it's the same thing with feedback and complaint categorically, right? So you have to decide, I value all opinion, and then you can assign it however you want to assign it in your own head and say, this is truly worth acting upon, but I would use the mathematical model more than the individual intensity of the person. And what I mean by that is, if more people say the same thing, I give that more credence than one person who says it intensely. Well, let's flip this around. How do I become a more effective complainer and get what I want? Well, the same things that you have a tendency to ignore, 
you shouldn't do that if you're trying to get what you want, right? So you shouldn't be outlandish. You shouldn't be angry. You shouldn't use profanity. You should stay on topic. You should not, and this is a really important one for the modern age, you should not switch channels unless you are invited to do so. What I mean by that is if you call a company or email a company and then you decide to go to Facebook, don't do that unless they ask you to do that. Because what happens then is you now have multiple incidences at the organization. So now they've got you on record making a call and an email and on Facebook. And you might think that's actually helping you. But in some cases, it hurts you because behind the scenes, now they've got to stitch all that together. And that takes time. So I would stay with one channel until you get a response and it actually ends up being much, much better. And I think the biggest piece of advice I would have in that, in that category, Jordan, is ask for help, but don't try to punish people. And don't treat them as an individual as the problem. What I really don't like, and I'm certainly guilty of it at times myself, but what I really don't like is when individuals are on the phone with somebody in customer service or they're emailing somebody and they're trying to take it out on that individual, right? Who just happens to be the person who answered the phone, who just happens to be the person, you know, working the gate at Delta or what have you. That individual is a representative of the company, but in almost no cases did they actually cause your problem. And if you want to get your problem handled, you got to keep that in mind. Huh. I'm not totally convinced that would work in Los Angeles, which, it's, <laughs> or maybe Hollywood. I shouldn't say LA as a whole. There you go. I think some subcultures and subcultures reward assholery in many ways, some places. Would you agree with that? Uh, I think at, at times when people believe that it is in their best interest to solve that problem, to move on to the next one. But you have to realize that in practice, most people in a customer service context, or even you running your show, you decide how to handle that. If somebody complains, you decide whether to do something about it, not do something about it, how you answer them, how you don't answer them. You don't have any rules and regulations governing your response. And in fact, more so than most people understand, the gate agent at Delta or the restaurant server or the person working at Foot Locker or whatever, in many cases has a broader swath of potential avenues that they can take in a customer service scenario than you think. So you can treat them one way and then they can treat you in a way that's not particularly good for you or vice versa. So I believe, and maybe it's just because I was born in the Midwest, that you get more results with, with honey than with vinegar, uh -huh. but your results may vary. Now, is there a way to find a baseline for a place that you can judge what the complaint threshold is? or, or whatever? Because of course, Midwest, I'm from there too. My dad's advice, which is funny, because he's like the biggest hothead, and I teach this for a living, is always, well, you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar, as I try to smooth things over and he yells at the attendant. <laughs> Sounds like your dad's a hypocrite, and I love it. A little bit. Yeah, I mean, we all are, right, I guess. But definitely when it comes to this stuff, my dad fits the bill on that one. Is there a way to kind of go, okay, this is the kind of place where this is probably what's going to work? Well, that's what I love about review sites now, right, is go. that you can, like, one of the things that I do sometimes, if I have a problem with a business, okay, and I need to get a hold of them, I could just call them or email them or go on Twitter or whatever, but a lot of times what I'll do is I'll actually go look at the reviews of that company, or I'll go look on Facebook or Twitter, and I'll see how they've handled other people. Because in most cases now, there are breadcrumbs out there of their customer service style, and how much or how little they will actually reach out to their customers and help them. And so it really is beneficial for you to do a little of that research before you lash out, because it will help you understand like what is a realistic expectation for how this interaction is going to go. 
and just take five minutes and just do a little poking around before you make your move. I'd love to wrap with the story that we talked about pre-show that illustrates why haters don't necessarily have what you call a crystal ball, why it's our problem. I think you have a, a really great illustration of this. We tend to blame customers and and we tend to default to an answer which is, well, that customer's lying or that's not true or they're just a troll or they're unethical, right? We, we always throw it back on them. And in a lot of cases, what I've discovered both in life and in business is that it's just a difference of opinion or it's a difference of sort of understanding the whole story. So when I was um, uh, a little younger, I lived in Phoenix and my very best friend from second grade uh, married my wife's sister, which I totally recommend if you can socially engineer that, um, it, you should do a whole show on that. It's uh, it's pretty spectacular. So this was uh, circa uh, in the 90s, late 90s, as before any of us had kids. And uh, the four of us hung out together all the time. It was like an episode of Friends, right? It was amazing. So I was 32. He was 32. My best friend, Al, uh, who was from New York. And when he was 32, I was 32. He came down with brain cancer. And he had to have a whole series of invasive brain surgeries. And one of the outcomes of one of those surgeries is that he lost the power of speech. He was still doing okay, but he just couldn't speak. They just kind of cut that part out, like, we, we got to take this. And so at the same time, 9-11 occurred. And right after that, the World Series resumed after a delay. And the Diamondbacks, Arizona Diamondbacks, played the New York Yankees in the World Series that year. Uh, I was living in Phoenix. I'd been a Diamondbacks season ticket holder since the very first year. And... I said, I got tickets for game seven. And like, there's only one person in the world I want to take with me. And it's my brother-in-law, Al, my best friend, who was a huge, huge Yankees fan. Well, my other buddy, Pete, and the tickets were in his name. We shared them for the season, had a couple weeks later, for reasons that I still don't fully understand, lost the playoff tickets. Like just lost them, Doesn't lost them all. So it wasn't that big of a deal because in the first round, second round of the playoffs, even the early uh, World Series games, we just go to the box office. We'll call and be like, here's my ID. Here's our seat number. And they just print them out. They had one of those like old dot matrix printers from back in the day, like, eh, eh, eh. And like, here you go, like a little crappy Ticketmaster ticket. No big deal. So game seven occurs and it's a big deal because this is right after 9-11. So security is super, super high. There's all these extra security guys, plain clothes and otherwise. It was so on edge in town that they welded shut all the manhole covers from a mile around the stadium, just in case there's like a subterranean terrorist cell. It was crazy, right? Really high security. So we go to the game, we get in the game, we're in our seats. So bottom of the first inning, Al pantomimes to me, I want to go in for a cigarette. And I know not as socially acceptable now, but look, that was also 15 years ago. And the way I look at it is if you have brain cancer, you should smoke them if you got them. Like, yeah, go, smoke them if you get literally. Yeah, go for it, right? So he goes down, I watch him walk away. He goes down, down the left field line to the outdoor smoking patio. So I'm watching the game and an inning goes by and another inning goes by. And I'm like, dude, this is like the best cigarette ever. Like, what is going on? He's missing game seven of the World Series. Like, I should probably go on the hunt. So I go look for him. So I get out of my seat. I walk down left field, go out to the smoking area and I open the door and he is up against a brick wall in handcuffs with a security guard in his face yelling at him. Oh, no. So I bust out the door and I'm like, whoa, 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 what's going on? What's going on? He's like, are you with him? I'm like, yeah. Turns me around, boom, up against the wall, you know, hand on the back of the collar, face into the wall, handcuffs me. Completely unreasonable, by the way. Turns out that because we had these different tickets, which did not look like the big hologram souvenir tickets that every other person at the game had, 
This security guard, who was not regularly working for the Diamondbacks, he was brought in special because of 9-11, was like, you guys are not supposed to be here, and you are part of a terrorist cell, and it really didn't help that Al couldn't talk and couldn't answer any of his questions. So he thought he was just refusing to answer, and I was trying to explain he can't answer, and that's not what he's capable of doing right now. He, This guy would have none of it. So we were against the wall in handcuffs, and an inning goes by, and another inning goes by, and another inning goes by, <sighs> and another inning goes by, and another inning goes by. It's now the top of the seventh inning, and I've missed five innings of the World Series Game 7. And finally, out of the corner of my eye, I see a guy who I know works for the team walk by. And I can't flag him down because I'm in handcuffs, but I'm sort of like shouting over my shoulder and he comes over and I'm like, what's the deal? And he's like, oh, let me, okay, sorry. And he goes, gets a guy, comes back, says, oh, these guys are fine. And the security guard unhandcuffs us. And that's it. Doesn't say sorry, doesn't say enjoy the game. Not, not a word. That's unhandcuffs us and we walk off. Unreal. We get back to our seats just in time for the bottom of the ninth when the Diamondbacks won the World Series in Game 7 uh, on a base hit uh, in the bottom of the ninth off of Mariano Rivera. Many people say it's the, the greatest play in World Series history. The stadium goes crazy, completely blows up. Uh, it was really, really a spectacular, spectacular moment. Al died not too long after that. And for a long time, I mean, it was it was really hard, of course, but but for a long time, I was really bitter about that whole thing, right? It was like, look... You know, this security guard, you know, stole these memories from us and ruined our experience. And, you know, they were in the wrong and this is ridiculous. And why was I in handcuffs and nobody would let me out? And he didn't apologize. It's like all these things of like, you know, what he did wrong. And then now with some distance, and it really helped me to write this book, I realized that, you know what, he was doing exactly what he was trained to do. And exactly what he was told to do. He didn't know that we had fake tickets or, you know, different tickets. He didn't know that there even were any different tickets. He didn't know that Al had brain surgery. He didn't know any of those things. He could only see the information that he had at his disposal. And that's the exact same thing that happens over and over with customers or audience members or friends who give us negative feedback. We're so quick to say they're in the wrong. They're lying. They're trolls. They're outlandish. And in many cases, it's just that they don't have all the information necessary. And so instead of lashing out at them and taking it personally, or what typically happens as we've discussed today, ignoring them, I think we should recognize it for what it really is, which is just a difference of perspective and try to use it to make ourselves better. So it was a long time ago, but I remember it like it was yesterday. And it's informed my perspective on these things quite a bit. Jay Bear, thank you so much for your time and your your expertise and your transparency on this one. Excellent. I, I think there's a lot we can learn whether we run a business or not. I really don't want people to discount the value of this in their personal lives as well. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I hope everybody likes the book. Is there anything that we didn't ask that you want to make sure you communicate to the AOC family? Oh, just let everybody know that the book is available, all the places and ways the books are available. Uh, Amazon, of course, bookstores, Audible, read by myself. Uh, would love, 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 of course, everybody's feedback. Uh, leave reviews and you can guarantee I'll answer them. That's true. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jay. My pleasure. 
Great stuff from Jay. He's a really good presenter, and he's he really knows what he's talking about. I love the data-driven approach instead of, here's some random crap I think you should do based on the fact that I like to charge for my consulting. I mean, this is researched. This is stuff he's put into action for NGOs and big companies that actually works. And now we get to use it in our personal lives and our business if we have one. So if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Jay on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as the other resources and his new book, Hug Your Haters, mentioned on the show. You can tap our album art and most mobile podcast players to see the cheat sheet for this episode, and we link to the show notes directly on your phone. I'm also on Twitter at The Art of Charm. You can find all of our amazing sponsors in the show notes or go to theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Bootcamp details, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. Remember, subscribe in iTunes, iPhone and Android apps available. This episode of the Art of Charm podcast was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.